The Golden Gate Bridge has long been an iconic American symbol, recognized for its aesthetic charm and architectural soundness. Unfortunately, the same recognizable features that people cherish have also made it a destination for individuals contemplating suicide. Since its opening in 1937, there have been over 1,700 confirmed suicides from the bridge. And even presently, someone goes there with suicidal intentions every few days. With September being National Suicide Prevention Month, we saw it fitting to find someone whose job had a ton of meaning for those caught between hope and despair. Thank you for listening to LJN Radio. I'm Tim Muma. And on this episode of Community Concepts, we're speaking with a man who did everything he could to help prevent those fatal decisions that people thought about making on the Golden Gate Bridge. His name is Kevin Briggs, though some call him the guardian of the Golden Gate. Now, for more than two decades, he roamed San Francisco's classic landmark as a California Highway Patrol officer, saving hundreds of individuals from certain death. He's now retired as far as being an officer, but Kevin is currently the president of Pivotal Points. That's an organization focused on crisis management and suicide prevention. He's also the author of a new book, Guardian of the Golden Gate. There, he gives an inside look into the various aspects of his life and career, and we're very happy to have him on the phone today. Kevin, thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you, Tim. Happy to be here. Now, of course, the role you've played uh, throughout your life and career has been extremely interesting, and uh, we'll focus on a couple parts, uh, obviously, that relate to suicide prevention and then also what you're doing now with Pivotal Points. But I wanted to start off back when you were uh, an officer for the California Highway Patrol, and you did have to worry about approaching individuals who were contemplating suicide. When you would first get that call or find out that you know they need you to go out there, what would you feel? What would go through your mind as you were about to engage with this person? When I first got that call and I'm responding down there, I'm trying to put it into my head. If they tell me where it's at, you know, I'm not part of the bridge and what's going on, how busy it is that day, if it's a weekend or what it might be, how I'm going to approach this mm-hmm. and you know what I might say. So I'm, I'm already making a plan in my head as I respond, not that it's going to occur like that, but at least have something to go off of when I get down there. Sure. So I would, you know, get to this individual and get to within maybe 15 feet, something like that, and generally ask their permission to come up and speak with them. You know, if they're over the rail, hmm. I want to start empowering them right from the start. And of course, on most occasions, I'm on duty at the time, so I'm in uniform. So they see I'm, I'm an authority figure of some sort or another. So I just introduce myself as Kevin, and I'd ask their permission to come up and speak with them. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but when you first started patrolling the bridge, you didn't actually have any formal training on sort of handling these types of situations or individuals. Is that accurate? Yeah, 100%. Yes. And looking back, how do you feel about that? Was that risky? Was that sort of a mistake, for lack of a better term? I mean, how would you kind of look back on that? It was. It was a mistake because these are so different. Negotiations of these types are so different than what we are trained to do as police officers. We're trained to be firm. Uh, direct, go in and handle a situation. This is different. The people on the other side of that rail, really, they call the shots. Hmm. We might be able to limit where they go, so to speak, but I can't limit what they do if they're going to jump or not. And my job is to take a step back, look at the whole situation and negotiate with that person and really negotiating for their life. Right. Now, you mentioned when you first would approach them, you'd introduce yourself, try to give them a little bit of power right off the bat. What are some other things you would possibly say or do when you are first engaging with them or, or maybe even just some of the common things that you might talk to them about? Now, I'd like to talk about 
what happened in their life to get them to this place, to this situation that they're in now? Not really, you know, what bad, what, what bad things happened to get you here now? Not really that. I don't want to leave anything negative. I want to see what happened in your life to get you to this point that you are now over the rail or wherever you may be in the parking lot or something. I want to find out what's going on with them, what the big issues are. Many times folks will be, they're overwhelmed with 10, 15, 20 different things that they just can't wrap their head around. Their means of coping with all this are gone. And I want to find out, you know, what's, what's the big ones? What can we work on? Not that we are going to be able to solve them, more than likely not that day, but at least maybe we could talk about them and bring some things to light that, that possibly they haven't looked at before. A couple of different options, you know, instead of, well, you should have done this and you should have done that. How about, well, have you tried this? Hmm. A, a different approach. Sure. Now, when you are interacting with an individual like this, are you talking about yourself at all? Is it more about just hearing them out? I mean, how do you, and I'm sure every individual is going to be different, obviously, but is, are there certain common tactics or strategy you're using when you're talking about or talking with this person? Yes. We, we do uh, try to get commonalities with them, but I don't talk about myself, all the different things that have happened with me, cancer, depression, heart issues, and, and everything else, because it's not about me. It's about them. So I certainly don't want to go up there and say, well, you only had a couple of things going on. You're like, let me tell you about me. I should be over the rail. It's not like that. Sure. I want everything to be focused on them. It's about them at that point and why they're there. Now, if they bring it up and say, well, you don't know what it's like having cancer. Well, I can, well this is what happened to me. I had it. And this is the thing. That, so now we have something in common that maybe we can stretch out. What we're trying to do is, is get the time uh, lengthen it, really. The longer we can keep them going, then that's our better chance of getting them back over that rail and some help. Right. It gives them a chance to calm down, to really see things, what's going on. So that's, that's really what we try to do. Do you notice or have you in the past noticed or sort of common topics that have helped people kind of gain that perspective or realize, you know, kind of snap out of it, so to speak, again, lack of a better term, to come to grips with, okay, I can handle this, or there are other things going on that are more important to I me. Mean, are there certain bonds that in general you've found with a lot of these individuals? A few things I've seen are most feel that they're a burden, hmm. a burden to their family, or they they're just in a lot of pain from depression. And most of the folks up there have depression. Right. Ninety nine percent, I would say, if they were prescribed medication, have stopped it a few weeks or several weeks prior. Wow. So that's a big one. Sure. You know, and there's over twenty different types just of depression medication. So there's you know a lot of different things that a psychologist and psychiatrist clinician can work on with these folks. Maybe they haven't seen that there's all these different things, cognitive behavioral therapy, and all these different things that they could try to work on their issues. So they feel neglected. They feel like they're a burden and they're just tired of suffering. Now, you bring up an interesting point there as far as the depression side and mental illness in general. Of course, people bring up. Um, there's the flip side of some people. I see this argument, especially with talking about um, some safety measures that are going to be hopefully put into place with the Golden Gate Bridge. That some people argue, well, you shouldn't stop them. This is their life, their choice. What's your response to people who feel that way about these individuals who are contemplating suicide? I would say to them, why don't they have a chance? You know, mental illness, which is most of the time why folks are up there, mental illness, what it is. We have to look at that. It's a disease. Because I had cancer, does that not give me the right to live? Let's try to fix this. Because I have heart disease and I have three stents in my heart. If that didn't happen, I may not be here. These folks have mental illness, which means they might not know exactly what's going on in their life. I've had people that can't even remember driving up to the bridge. 
So how can they be responsible for what's going on that time? So don't they have a right to try to get better? No, I think that's a great point. I think a lot of people don't see it from that perspective. And obviously someone like you who has seen this firsthand, I think hopefully that'll help at least people gain a little more perspective on that. Any idea how many people you were able to save or prevent from a suicidal situation? You know, if I counted up just, uh, if I went from the folks I contacted throughout the bridge, parking lots and the whole bit, mm-hmm. there'd be several hundred. There'd be wow. several hundred. And that's, you know, it's unfortunate. I, I wish it was zero, to be honest with you. Sure. But it's just, that goes with the job. So we take each and every one very seriously. And, and uh, I have lost a couple. So it's, it's been tough. Would you be able to share one or two of the more memorable scenarios where you were able to help someone, whether it was because of what you talked about, because of just, I don't know, something that stuck out in your mind that you really look back fondly on? I mean, obviously all of them, but maybe a couple that really stand out to you as memorable. Right. Well, the one that really stands out to me is a a black man named Kevin Berthia, and he was on the bridge on the sidewalk by the North Tower talking on his cell phone to one of his family members. And that family member called 911, who then called us. So I received the call, and I proceeded down the sidewalk on my motorcycle. And as I approached the North Tower, I saw him, or what I thought was him. So I stopped about 75 feet away, something in that range. Mm -hmm. As I got off my motorcycle, he turned and looked at me, and he went leaped right over the rail. Hmm. Now, over the rail, around the towers is just a small little, maybe six-inch pipe, really very small pipe. I don't know how he did it, but he landed on that pipe and was able to hold on. I don't know how, how he did this, but that was a, an amazing feat in itself. There he stood on this little bitty pipe. I asked him if I could come up and speak with him. He didn't allow me for 10, 15 minutes or so. He wanted nothing to do with me. He was scared, of course, frightened. You got to remember, this is like the, the darkest time in someone's life. Right. So what they say, what comes out of their mouth, how they act, it's different than they would if we were just sitting in a, in a coffee shop or something. You know, it's a very traumatic time. Sure. So eventually he did allow me to come up and speak with him. And we spoke for about 90 minutes. And for all but about four or five minutes of that, um, Kevin Berthia spoke. And all these issues that were in his head that had happened to him during the course of his life, I believe he was just 22 at the time. Wow. So he was adopted. His, his birth mother didn't want anything to do with him. He had bomb medication, but he had stopped. He had a little daughter that was born prematurely that wasn't doing well. You know, he had a lot of stuff going on, and he just couldn't take it anymore. What really happened in this was he was looking for somebody to listen to him, and nobody was listening to him with ears open, eyes right on him. That's what he was looking for. He wanted to vent, and that's all was needed. So after about 90 minutes, he decided on his own to come back over that rail. And that takes a lot of courage to come back over that rail because, of course, we can't fix much. Mm. being on, on this side of where we're at. I'm not a clinician. I'm not a money manager or anything like this. But of course, he decided on his own. So it takes a lot of courage to come back over that rail and face everything again, because it's easy, I would say, to let go and drop down into that water and you're gone. You know, all your worries are gone. Everything's gone. Right. But to come back over that rail and face everything that you had was, uh, that was there before, you know, that's tough. But he did that. And he's now, he's doing well. He really is. Now, when somebody does make that decision to come back to safety, what's sort of the mood like? What's happening then? I mean, is there still a discussion? Is is there a process that happens? I think a lot of people, you know, in their minds, 
see someone come back to safety and then it's sort of over. But what what happens from there as far as what you would be doing, what that individual might be, have to go through? Uh, what have you seen? What have you experienced? When someone comes back over that rail, when I look in their eyes, it's, it's rebirthed hmm. from how I describe it. It's like looking into a little child's eyes. You know, they're scared, they're nervous, but they're relieved, they're happy. You see all these different things going on. It's a really neat time. It, it really is. It, it, uh, it's something else to see the, what's in their eyes when they come over. But before they do, I tell them, when you come over, when you come back over, I never say if, because I keep it everything positive. Sure. When you come back over, this is what's going to happen. I thoroughly explain it to them. I'm going to tell them, you're not under arrest. You haven't done anything wrong. Because a lot of people think they're going to be arrested. They're going to be put in jail. And they don't want to do that. That's another reason why they don't want to come back over. Right. So I'll explain everything to them. This is what's going to happen. You come back over. I'm going to have to place you in handcuffs. That's just because it's our policy. You haven't done anything wrong. Mm-hmm. You're not going to jail. You know, you're not going to jail. You're not going to get a ticket. I'm going to take you to one of the local hospitals to get you some help. And that's the end of it. So if I had promised them coffee or McDonald's or something <laughs> along the way, then I have to do that. Sure. I haven't done that. But as far as coffee, yes, I have promised you <laughs> coffee. And we will do that. We're not going to a coffee shop and sitting and, and chatting for a bit. Right. But I will certainly get them a cup of coffee. And that's a really big deal because if I promise something, I have to come through with it. Because if I don't, if that person comes up again or somewhere else, they're going to be very distrusting of an officer. And and not even on these type of stops, on, on anything else. Sure. You know, it's right. very important that if I make a promise, I hold on to that and we have to do that. So I will take them to a local hospital, uh, the mental health unit, and then they will see a professional there. Now, do you get to hear from these individuals or hear how they're doing with, with a lot of them? Is it kind of touch and go with some? I mean, what's kind of the experience been for you with those? Generally, I do not hear from them again. Really? And I don't actively seek them out because it, it could be a trigger for them to re-experience a lot of things that they don't want to mm-hmm. face again. Just seeing me in uniform, maybe they will never go back up to that bridge again. It could trigger certain things. So I don't want to do that. I have kept in contact with Kevin Berthia. And we are friends and we actually get to speak together a few times. So his case has been a a little unique, but it's been really, really neat to watch him progress. So, you know, we could have easily lost him that day. And on his, just just by listening is what I want to tell folks, really. Taking the time to really listen to someone, that is a, a huge benefit to those people. Now, of course, there are scenarios when, uh, you know, emergency personnel aren't around, aren't available when somebody is contemplating suicide. And I was curious if the average person listening right now comes across an individual, maybe they're on the verge of jumping from a bridge or they're in some other suicidal condition. What would you suggest he or she do if there are no authorities around and it's sort of a, you know, yes, we're going to contact the authorities, but you have some time there where you have to work with. What would you suggest an individual do in that situation? I would say make that contact. Always keep yourself safe, though. I would never reach over the rail and grab someone to try to pull them back. Mm-hmm. You never know. You could get pulled over into that. So keep yourself safe is number one. You know, if it's possible and you can do this safely, talk with them, approach them, say, give them your name. You don't have to give them your full name, but your first name. Try to get their first name and personalize everything. Mm. If the person's name is Joe, hi, Joe. My name's Kevin. What's going on today? What's been happening in your life to come to this? And try to get a conversation going on. Joe, do you have any kids? What do you think they'd feel? I don't know what's going on. And see what is, try to stall for time until we get a negotiator there. Right. And if we can't, hey, continue it the best that you can with empathy. Empathy is the big thing. And if 
I can tell you, if they're talking, then let them talk. Let them talk as much as they want. That really reduces the risk of them actually doing the act. Sure. And I wanted to ask, because I, I mean, hopefully there aren't many people out there going to be in that situation. But if it does occur, I think some individuals are worried, well, if I might say something that's going to cause them, you know, to go through with it. But, uh, you know, I, I think, as you said there, just hopefully listening can help until you get people there, like yourself, that could actually give them uh, some support that they need. We're getting a little low on time, which is unfortunate because I'm, I could probably talk to you for hours on, on some of these subjects. But I did want to talk a little bit about Pivotal Points, the organization you're president of. You're no longer patrolling the Golden Gate Bridge, but you are still kind of in that same industry as far as helping individuals. Can you give us a little synopsis of what Pivotal Points is all about? Sure. I started Pivotal Points just after I retired about a year and a half ago. So I wanted to continue on with this crisis management. And this goes from anywhere. From I developed a couple of programs. One, even just to talk to your kids about getting their homework done, to get along better with them. For the corporate world, how we can take care of our employees, because if an employee is unhappy, their work isn't going to be that, that good. You know, it's going to suffer. Mm-hmm. So we need to look at folks to see how can we help them. And we still got a job to do, but our communication skills are so, so important. I've developed a couple of programs, and it's in a book that, is, that I just released. It just came out. It's called Guardian of the Golden Gate, and it's available on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble. I have a whole bunch of different things, and there's stories of how we can connect with each other a little better. Communication is such an important thing. That silence, it just does no good. You, I mean, we see that time and time again where people are angry, they're not talking. If we sit down and we take the time to confront someone, they may not be in a crisis to where they're going to think about committing suicide. But let's find out. It's a courageous conversation. It takes a lot of courage to do that. But think if you didn't do that, just to check on the folks, it's a really big deal. So I, I developed a couple of programs to help people feel at ease when they communicate to someone and to the person that they're communicating to, to feel like they're not being harassed, hassled, to make them feel at ease so they can let go of their feelings and not be humiliated so they can let go and, and let us know what's really going on with them. And as you mentioned there, you have the book as well, uh, as you gave us the title there, Guardian of the Golden Gate. Uh, what, I guess, a little bit more can you tell us is in the book, you have Examples from your career? Do you have some antidotes that uh, we're talking about as far as crisis prevention, suicide prevention? What, what can people expect if they do pick up the book? Well, I do. I have a couple or a few different case scenarios that, that I have had and that people have called in and told me about that I thought were really important that we should share with folks of their depression or their bipolar or what happened with their life. And of course, I lost my grandfather, one of my grandfathers, to suicide. My other one was a, a lineman working on a pole. And he was electrocuted, lost both of his arms, came back after big, big time injuries, studied very hard and became a judge. I mean, these things that we can overcome, but it takes a lot of work. So I talk about a couple of folks that I have lost also and how that affected the families and how they can get through this, you know, through the grieving process. It is tough. It is really tough. But I want people to know there's people out there that are available for them that can help them. When I say talk about crisis management, it's so many different aspects of this that, that we can talk about. But really, it's about human life and how we can make it better for each and every one of us through simple listening skills, active listening skills and communication. I entail my life. I've had cancer when I was in the Army. I worked at San Quentin. I have a pretty funny story there uh, with a couple of the inmates, one Charles Manson, and going through the cancer that I had, the heart issues. Uh, I was on the motorcycle. I was the motor sergeant in Marin County here a nasty crash that I was involved in. So I went through a whole bunch of different things of 
things that can happen to folks and what happened to me and how I've dealt with it. It's basically, you know, a, about a lot of individuals and how we can get along and what happens when things go bad. If we lose someone to suicide, how can we cope? It's tough. Well, Kevin, uh, again, I wish we could continue on our conversation. We're going to let you go here, but I really do appreciate you coming on, uh, giving us some of your perspectives. And uh, again, I'm sure all the people listening out there who you've touched appreciate the work you've done both in the past and what you're currently doing. So thank you very much for coming on and sharing with us. Well, thank you, sir. It's been a pleasure. Unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today here on Community Concepts. It's been a pleasure speaking with Kevin Briggs, former California Highway Patrol officer who saved hundreds of lives helping to prevent people from committing suicide on San Francisco's Golden Gate Bridge. He is now the president of Pivotal Points. You can check them out. They are focused on crisis management and suicide prevention as well. He also has a book. It's called Guardian of the Golden Gate, and you can find that on Amazon.com. And also quickly, as September is National Suicide Prevention Month, if you are struggling with the idea or thought of suicide, please reach out. You can always call one 800 273 8255. That's the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Again, 1-800-273-8255. That's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. If you are looking for someone to talk to, please use that phone number. Now, if you'd like to get in touch with us about this show or any of our episodes, you can send us an email, ljnradio at localjobnetwork.com. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at the LJN. And if you'd like to find any of our shows, you can also look to iTunes. Just search LJN Radio. Once again, thank you very much for listening. I'm Tim Muma. Take care, everybody.